0: Hi everyone, this is Liam Sanyo from Inside Scientific, your favorite online source for life science webinars, virtual events, interviews, and educational content helping you do your best work. This episode of Expert Answers features Professor Simon Schultz, head of the Laboratory of Coding and Neurodegenerative Disease at Imperial College London, and Professor Michael Gord, head of a lab in the Molecular, Cellular, and Developmental Biology Department at UC Santa Barbara. Recently, Professor Schultz and Professor Gord joined me for a great webinar where they presented their research using two-photon microscopy to study major hippocampal regions in awake head-fixed mice navigating an airlifted cage or maze. All right, let's jump right in. Okay, let's jump right in with a great question for Simon. How does head fixation affect spatial memory?
1: Okay. I mean, that's an interesting point, which was forefront in, in our minds uh, when we started this project. So clearly our animals are, our mice are head fixed and because they're head fixed. They don't have vestibular information or more to the point, the sort of vestibular asynchrony with respect to the information you would expect them to get as, you know, as an animal is sort of naturally moving around its an environment. So we certainly sort of went into this expecting upfront uh, actually not to see place cells in 2D as a result of that. We knew, however, that from virtual reality studies that we um, should perhaps see place cells in. Um, one dimension in, in sort of, you know, tasks where they're sort of, say, traveling through a, a track, like our circular track task. And, and we did see that. But surprisingly, we also saw them in, in 2D. And, you know, really our thoughts on that were that, well, certainly vestibular information is important, but actually maybe it's not the full story. And maybe a lot of the issue. Um, here is actually, you know, multimodal information that, you know, we have tactile information, we have visual information, possibly we have olfactory information, et cetera, as well. And actually, if the animal is able to integrate this, this all in, maybe that overcomes the, the lack of vestibular information. So it does it does affect it, I think, but not as much as we expected. And we were able to, to map, you know, place cells uh, even in uh, two-dimensional environments, which, you know, indicates that spatial memory is, is there. Perfect. Great answer.
0: Michael, I'll ask you to lead this next question, but do other types of cues, for example, tactile cues on the floor, improve place field measurements?
2: Right. so we might need to ask Simon to come on this because I think he actually looked at it a bit more than I did. But uh, so we did use tactile cues and we did it less so that the animals could kind of tell where they were within the environment, but more as a way to kind of help them clock how far they had gone. So. For example, in the circular maze, I guess you call it, or track, we we had regular kind of cues just so that, you know, if they were running fast, they could kind of have some indication of of how fast they were going from the tactile input. As Simon mentioned, they are missing their vestibular input, so we wanted to kind of give them some extra information. However, we uh, used the same cues, so we didn't try to distinguish uh, location based on the identity of the cue. And I'm not sure how much that would help because, you know, remember they're, they're head fixed in place. So it's not like they can really get down there and whisk and, and, and help kind of uh, distinguish different objects. They're, they're really only kind of doing it with their paws. And I'm not sure, you know, without kind of spending some time training them, if they could distinguish subtle differences in cues just as they're moving about. So, you know, in terms of how much it helps, I, I actually don't have a great sense. Simon might have
1: some insight on that. Sure. Yeah. Simon, do you have anything to add on to that? Um, yeah. I mean, I guess uh, I would just add that, I mean, we had both visual and tactile cues, For a similar reason. We just wanted to create the richest local environment possible, but what we didn't do is try and, you know, dissociate those two things. And that would actually be a you know, very interesting experiment to do. It's probably hard to do it properly because of course, you know, okay, you say so they're not necessarily sort of getting down and whisking. But of course, they do have whiskers. And if they go through a narrow corridor, you know, maybe they can feel our visual cue, etc. Maybe they can see our tactile cues are hard to know. So yeah, we don't really know which is the most important there, to be fair. Excellent. Next question here.
0: Yeah. How long did it take you to train mice in the airlifted environment? Michael, maybe you could start with this one.
2: Right. So what we ended up doing, and again, uh, part of this was just kind of getting them used to the setup and making sure they were running enough so we didn't really thoroughly empirically test it. But we ended up first putting them in the chamber. Uh, so we did this over two sessions over two days. And then we put the whole chamber in a larger box so that they could just uh, explore it while they're freely moving. And that just kind of let them learn the local cues and get comfortable in the environment. And then we spent about one week of uh, daily head fixation sessions where they would run around on on the mobile cage system. And we found that usually the first day they were a little bit scared and wouldn't run around a whole lot. There was some individual variability between mice. And then over that week, they would creep up a little bit. Typically, they're running at about 20 or 30% of the imaging session. I suspect if we kept going even longer, we could could raise that even a bit more. We've generally found with the running wheels and things like that, they, they like to run around. So once you get them really comfortable, they might spend more time on there. But we just, yeah, after a week, we, we kind of felt like we were hitting a plateau. So we, we stopped uh, training them at that point.
0: Excellent. And Simon, uh, what was your experience like with uh, habituation? So, uh, of the yeah, I mean, ab-
1: about I mean, similar about a week, it depends on the particular sort of environment, it t- took a little longer to get them sort of nicely running around the open field than the 1D task. Uh, we did water restrict. Okay, so our animals were rewarded, effectively on the basis of how much they ran around okay we wanted to get them exploring as much so that we could map place fields well um after a week or so we were up to 50 to 70 percent um of time um exploring that or time moving in in the environment um which is as much as you want really you don't want to do it all the time yeah, so that's a Excellent. pretty large difference uh, and i think that's to do with you know how motivated they are based on the water
2: restriction
0: exactly perfect um Simon, I'll give you this next question here. Uh, Don't you need uh, distal visual cues to form place fields?
1: Well, that's kind of the received wisdom in the place field community, but apparently not. Uh, I should note that the mouse visual system is actually adapted to see things close up. You know, they don't have particularly high spatial acuity. If you think about it, features far away have to be big uh, for them to be able to see them. Features closer up can be a little smaller and they can see them. And... You know, it's worth noting that, you know, in our environment, you know, within the two photo microscope cage enclosure, rather we, you know, it, it's dark. They can't see any distal cues because, you know, that would be a confound because of the, you know, the way the environment is set up. So it is only local cues and, and yet, and yet we find place fields. So, so you do get place fields from the local cues only. And, and there are previous papers that support that also.
0: Interesting. And
1: Michael, I'll
0: get you to lead this next question. When imaging through the the microprism, is there a significant tissue movement relative to the, the prism?
2: Right, so it's actually not too bad. So you also get some movement, but we actually find there's less movement when we're imaging through the prism compared to when we're imaging through a window, for example. So now I, I haven't Im- imaged hippocampus through a window, so I can't really compare. But I know imaging cortex through a window, we see you know a little bit of movement, both lateral and and the movement. We, we try to avoid, but you know especially if when they drink, you get uh, quite a bit of z movement. And uh, with the prisms, uh, both in cortex and in hippocampus, we do not see a whole lot, and we think because there's kind of a second anchoring point that keeps the tissue stable. Uh, so it's actually quite nice for you know dendritic imaging. I imagine if you were doing axonal imaging, it would be nice for that as well.
0: Excellent. Next question here for Simon. You, you said that you see slightly faster remapping of place fields compared to
1: in freely moving mice. And so why do you think that is? We honestly don't know. The, the same applies to the virtual reality papers if, if you look at them carefully. So, so somehow there is something about freely moving behavior, which sort of stabilizes place fields and therefore presumably sort of you know stabilizes spatial memory on a slightly longer time course than, than you get with with head fixed preparations, including virtual reality and including the mobile home cage type environment, you know, floating cages. So yeah, that's interesting. I think it would be interesting to try and pin that down at a later point.
0: Yeah, definitely. Michael, I'll give you this next question do you think this imaging approach could be used uh, during other behavioral tasks? Uh, how do you kind of see that playing out?
2: Sure. So, so you know with the microprism imaging, we could use it for all the same types of imaging circumstances that we'd use for other imaging approaches. Uh, so, for example, with the mobile cage, there's been some attempt to build these, uh, T mazes where you can train the mice to alternate for a reward. I'm not sure how successful people have done doing that, but that's, you know, one potential approach. You can do all the same virtual reality tasks that people typically do. Uh, so pretty much any head fix task you could run with this approach. One interesting thing I didn't really talk about during the seminar is, you know, there it's well known at this point that there are cells in the hippocampus that encode, uh, durations of, of, uh, time, the time cells. And that would be a very interesting thing to look at uh, using other sorts of tasks.
0: Definitely, and I think in the interest of time, we'll make this next question the last one, and I'll get both of you to respond to this one, but maybe, Simon, I'll get you to answer it first. But why did you choose the the mobile home cage over other approaches, like uh, you said, a, a treadmill and VR, and what do you think the advantages or disadvantages are in this case?
1: So, um, I mean, we had actually done virtual reality tasks before. Uh, we developed a, a platform in my lab previously for a closed-loop treadmill plus virtual reality system for studying the cerebellum, in fact. But I guess, you know, my concern when we were moving to do a project on the hippocampus and on spatial memory was I didn't, I wasn't really convinced that in the virtual reality environments, the animals really know what they're, you know, what they're seeing in a sense, you know, clearly that. You know, if you're looking at, say, the early visual system, that's going to be fine. But, you know, we wanted to be able to do more complex things like look at two-dimensional place field environments, et cetera. And I thought our our chances of getting that working nicely were, you know, were best. The more sort of permanent, if you like, the information could be. And I, I would uh, really say that's the one advantage of the mobile um, home cage um, system in that it, it, there is a sort of a, a permanence uh, of the the environment that the animal is perceiving i mean that that's a a plus and and a drawback as well obviously with the virtual reality environment you can reprogram it on a on a rapid basis and there are some things you can some questions you can ask with that that you couldn't do in another way but nevertheless the the physical environment permanent physical environment is is what the mouse's sensory systems and you know cognitive systems evolved to deal with and you know it's what they're adapted to so therefore i think it, it it has particular strength for, for looking at cognitive tasks, in fact.
0: Excellent. And Michael, why did you choose the, the mobile home cage?
2: Right. So I think I'm pretty much echoing Simon. So, you know, we've also done some virtual reality in the lab. And, and you know, what we find is, is I think it's great if you want to be able to control the task. I mean, you're kind of unlimited in terms of which task designs you can use. You can switch environments, you can warp them around. So it's great for that. Uh, flexibility. However, I think for studying kind of spatial representations in the hippocampus or other areas, there's something about having a real object. You know, when they run into a wall, you know, they, they bump their nose on it, they can whisk against it. When they, when they run into objects, it's the same thing. So there's kind of more meaning to uh, their local environment uh, rather than when they're in VR and they bump into, you know, a wall, they're, they're really just, you know, the visual stimulus is no longer updating. There's no real meaning to it. So I think for uh, kind of promoting spatial coding, the uh, floating cage has some real advantages. Now, neither of them, you get the vestibular input. So that's something you know. I think as a field, we still want to work on and and try to come up with even more realistic uh, solutions where we can image while uh, we get kind of all the inputs that you're getting as you move around in the world. But I, I think this is a, a step in the right direction.
0: Definitely, the the research is already so fascinating. I can't wait to see where it goes in the future. And yeah, so thanks so much, Michael and Simon for sharing your, your work with us today. It's been a real pleasure having you with us. Thank you, Liam. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Expert Answers, and that you'll tune into future episodes where researchers just like you answer questions about their work and share science. Don't forget to subscribe, and we'll see you next time.